How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Stanza two of the hymn, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives. The gifts flow from the font. Well, speaking there about baptism, what are the gifts that God gives through Christian baptism? And how do we find those gifts prefigured and predicted all through Holy Scripture? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part one of our series on Christian baptism. Joining us on this Monday Dr. Richard Davenport, he's pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Dr. Davenport, welcome. Glad to be here. What is Christian baptism? Well, I mean, it's one of the things that we kind of have drummed into us as as Lutherans, as you go up through Sunday school and through confirmation and such, we talk about baptism. We look at Luther's small catechism where he talks about it, but we talk about it as a sacrament, as a means of grace. And we hear Luther say, well, this is forgiveness, life, and salvation. But as we start looking at what God has said throughout all of scripture, we see that what baptism is, is God taking that forgiveness, God taking that salvation and life that we receive through his grace. And he shows us what that looks like. He gives us something that we can kind of pick up and and look at and, and understand what that is doing for us. It's not just that God kind of drops salvation on us. He's active in remaking us even now today. Many Christians think of baptism as an incidental rite in Scripture. How do you respond to that? Given how much time God puts into telling us about baptism, going all the way throughout all of the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. This is something that God has put this much time into weaving into the story of Scripture that he means this to be a, a major event, not, not, not even just a major event, but one of the events that mark who we are throughout our lives. It's why Jesus describes baptism as new birth. I mean, as as big a deal as your own birth was, this should be that much and more. And seeing how much we have going on into baptism, 
There's just so much that uh, we see God doing through baptism that it should be an overwhelming experience. Why did the 16th century reformer Martin Luther make such a big deal out of baptism? Well, one of the things that I find especially that makes Luther so great is his focus on God's promises. Luther's always going back to, well, what did God actually say? And this is kind of one of the big bones of contention he had with the Catholic Church, who was coming up with things that God didn't say anything about or even openly rejected. So Luther always looks at, well, if God said this, then it has to be true. It has to be true, not just today, but always. And so if God is saying something that is even something I don't quite understand, or perhaps something that is just almost too big to be believed, well, he said it, so it has to be true. And so when when Luther's looking at baptism, and he sees what God promises in that baptism, he says, well, God makes all of these promises to me. He claims me as his own. He makes me one of his children. He promises eternal life and the righteousness of Christ for me in that baptism. And I don't understand how all of that can be, but he said it. And so it has to be true. And so that was one of the places that Luther would always turn back to whenever he was faced with doubts, whenever he was tempted by anything that might be going on in his life, whenever he worried that maybe he had done something that made him too big a sinner to be forgiven, he would always think back to his baptism and say, well, God made me this promise. He did it, and he gave that to me, and it's mine now, and he's never going to take it away from me. And that means that's always going to be true. I'm always going to be one of his children, and he's always going to treat me that way. I never have anything to worry about because I've been baptized. How does the creation account point us to baptism? Well, that's one of the amazing things when you start looking at not just what our theology of baptism is, but you start putting the pictures together. And that's where the the Old Testament becomes so important. When you start lining up the things that are going on in creation and things that we see elsewhere, there's a lot of parallels. An easy one, for instance, is to look at Jesus' own baptism. He goes into the Jordan and he has this discussion with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is perplexed, you know, I should be the one being baptized by you, Jesus, but here you are asking me to baptize you. This doesn't make any sense. You don't need to ask forgiveness for anything. You don't need to repent of anything. And John is completely right, but Jesus says, you know, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And well, okay, looking at what Jesus says there, it doesn't make a lot of sense until you start watching what goes on when Jesus enters into the Jordan and John pours the water over his head. And suddenly there's the voice calling out from heaven. This is my beloved son. And there's the dove coming down and we're, we're told this, this is the spirit. And so one of the few places in all of scripture where you have 
the the trinity all three persons they're clearly together and involved in what's going on well okay so we take that and we start thinking well if this is so important then maybe there are other places that kind of look the same way and if we start thumbing through scripture we find there at the very beginning a very similar kind of thing taking place we have the father who we declare as the the creator that's how we confess him in the creeds and he's always the one who we see as kind of the the overseer the one who's who's managing all of the events and all of the work that's going on and so the father is there and he's looking down at this unformed substance and we see the spirit there we're told is hovering over the face of the waters and the father speaks the father speaks and he says let there be light and all by itself that i mean it's already kind of a momentous point in our history but then we have the helpful work of of the gospel of john who tells us that Jesus is the word. Jesus is the message. God speaks and the message that he gives is Christ himself. And so when God speaks, Jesus brings that light into creation. And that's part of why John describes Jesus as being the the light of the world, the light of men. And so the three persons of the Trinity are all active there together. And what are they doing? They're creating. Okay, so if we put those two events side by side, then when the Trinity gathers together, they're involved in this great work of creation. Well, that tells us something again about what's going on in baptism. Jesus is there in the Jordan, and the Spirit is there hovering over him, and the Father speaks, and Again, where are they doing this? In Jesus' baptism. So if creation came about through the work of the Trinity, then creation continues to be the work of the Trinity. And where do we find that creative work focused? But in baptism. And that becomes what helps us understand a number of these other events that come to play when we're looking at the Old Testament and the big events that are going on there. The flood, for instance, we have Luther in his flood prayer who talks about the flood and the eight souls that were saved in the ark. And we have St. Peter who tells us that the flood corresponds to baptism. And certainly Peter is speaking uh, under the influence of the Spirit. So we know that this is true, but just taking Peter at what he says, there's not a whole lot to go on there. All right, Peter, you say that the flood corresponds to baptism and that this is why baptism saves us, but why? Well, I mean, the flood has a lot of water going on, and certainly there were people who are saved, but so what? Well, again, when we start taking a look at what the flood has going on, then why baptism corresponds to the flood or vice versa, 
makes a whole lot more sense. And the flood being one of the foundational events for our understanding of what baptism does. I mean, we have there the the story at the beginning that God looks at the world and he sees it's full of corruption, full of evil, and everybody is doing evil all the time except for Noah and his family. And so God gives him this promise. You build this ark and you bring the animals in it because I'm going to send rain and I'm going to destroy the world. All right. And so that's what Noah does. He builds an ark and he doesn't have any evidence that there's going to be any kind of rain. He doesn't have anything to go on that says that this is going to happen at all. The only thing that backs this up is that it's God's word. So he does what he's told. He builds the ark. He loads the animals and he loads his family into it. God shuts him in. and Lo and behold, there's the rain, just like we're told. But it's again, when you start looking at the pictures, you start looking at the actual events that are going on, that things become really interesting. Because when the rain starts falling, we're told that this is there to wipe out all life on earth. Well, and you start thinking through how exactly that comes to pass. The rain comes down and we see People are drowned. We, we know that any land creature is swept away as well. Certainly the birds are carried away. And the only living things then at that point are those in the ark. And it's this is encompassing the whole world. So we have the clouds that are blotting out the whole sky. So to even know whether this is day or night, it's going to be hard to tell at that point because of how severe this storm is. There's nothing. There's just rain, rain and rain for days and days and days. And we're told how this flood comes to be that the water doesn't just come from above. It comes from below. Well, and eventually we get to the point where all of the mountains are covered, so the chance of any plant surviving, well, that's gone too. And finally, we're left with just Noah and his family and a few animals sitting in an ark. And when we follow this storm through and, and how it's doing what it's doing, we start to line those same events up with creation itself. Because in the order of creation, God sends light into the world. He divides out the waters. And we're told specifically in creation that he divides them above and below. We're told that he separates the dry land. He creates plants. And then he puts up the sun, moon, and the stars and all the heavenly bodies. He's bringing the birds and the fish. And then finally he brings the creatures that walk on the land. And finally there at the very end, he creates man and woman. And that as the flood is unfolding, each day is one by one undone until there at the very end, the end of the storm on day 40 what does Noah have to do but look out over the edge of the ark? 
what is Noah see? Just an unbroken ball of water, which is the very first thing we're told exists in all of creation. And so that tells us not just what is going on in our baptism and what that creation looks like, but how that comes to be. What does it mean for creation to be a part of baptism? Well, it means that God is unwinding all of the evil that has come to pass and putting us back in that state that existed before the fall into sin. Because after the rain stops, as the days wear on, suddenly the water recedes, and finally we get to that point where Noah is able to leave the ark. And we know that sin is still there because there are still sinners there. There's, there's still Noah. There's still his family. But we have a picture, at least for the moment, of what life would have looked like again back in the Garden of Eden. Everything's at peace. The sinners that covered the world that God was angry at, who were all evil all the time, they're gone now. And so now we have that just brief moment of paradise, just like Adam and Eve had back in the garden. And so we're shown what baptism does. It rewinds everything to the point where we or our sin isn't even counted, not even just not counted against us, but where it's not even visible. That's what it means to be putting on Christ's righteousness. It's not there. You can't see it. It's as if God has done away with it. And so new creation, new birth, all of these things are coming together in this wondrous event of baptism. And God shows us what that looks like because he's given us those Old Testament stories that walk us through what baptism is actually accomplishing in our life. It's part one of our series on Christian baptism with Dr. Richard Davenport, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Baptismal River. We'll discuss the image of God in baptism next. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. 
Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. For over 75 years, our Savior Lutheran Church has taught that among God's people, learning is drawn from the clear truth of God's eternal word, the Bible. Our focus is on the cross where our Savior Jesus Christ died so that we might live with Him here and in eternity. We invite you to join us for worship every Sunday at 9.30. We are located at 5000 West Tidwell in Houston, Texas. Or you can watch us on our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Our Savior Lutheran Church. And find us on our website at osl.cc. God's richest blessings. Equipping the priesthood of all believers. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Christ Lutheran, Normal, Illinois. First Bethlehem Lutheran, Chicago, Illinois. Hope Lutheran, Sonora, Texas. Lutheran Church of the Ascension, Atlanta, Georgia. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Redeemer Lutheran, East Inglewood, Florida. St. John Lutheran, Champaign, Illinois. St. Paul Lutheran, Emmitsburg, Iowa. Trinity Lutheran, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Zion Lutheran, Dexter, Iowa. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part one of our series on Christian baptism with Dr. Richard Davenport. He's author of the book, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. It's the Issues Etc. book of the month for August. Dr. Davenport, you say that the image of God is crucial to our understanding of baptism, and it's the basis for why Jesus is the Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, so we know that the word... Christos means the anointed one. And our understanding, as we see in the life of Christ, is that where does that anointing happen? Well, it takes place in his baptism. But anointed for what? What does that even mean? Why is that even important? Well, again, we go back to the Old Testament and we have this anointing taking place. God makes a provision for it in the Levitical laws. You have this oil that God gave a special recipe for. And he said, this is my recipe. You can't use it for anything else. And God directs where and when that this oil will be used. And one of the interesting properties of this oil is that whatever it touches is holy. Okay, so we then look at, well, what does God do with this oil? Well, he directs it to be used for three classes of people, prophets, priests, and kings. And so thinking through, well, what does a prophet do? What does a priest do? What does a king do? Well, that tells us something very important about the kinds of roles that God has given to people. 
and that Jesus is taking all of these roles onto himself. I mean, prophets are there to proclaim God's word, particularly when it means proclaiming that word to those in authority, those in power, particularly, again, to those who might be resistant to it. You're there to proclaim God's word, no matter who might be the recipient of that word. The word needs to be proclaimed, and and that's a prophet's job, is to to be that messenger, to share what has been given to him. And priests being the go-betweens, the, the mediators, the ones who not just receive God's blessings and dispense them to the world around them, but who also take all of the cares and concerns of the world and lift them up to God, to be the one who stands in between God and creation. And the kings being those people who are to be the caretakers, to be the stewards of the world, to manage the world, to bring order to the world, to give it structure and beauty and to see to all of its needs. And that these are all things that were given to mankind at the very beginning. I mean, that's the, the first command given directly to Adam and Eve to care for the world, to bring order to it, and that Adam was also given God's word. And at the time, God's word mostly consisted of just that warning not to eat of the fruit, but still, that was an important role, and the role that ultimately led to the downfall of all creation as Adam neglected his role as the one to speak God's word. If Adam had been doing his job and proclaiming God's word while the serpent was there trying to tempt Eve, things may have been very different. But we have that role and it was given to him. And so we also have that mediator role that's ultimately why and it's not just mankind that f- suffers the effects of sin but all of creation the creation doesn't know how to act it doesn't know where it's supposed to live we get we get bugs in the house we get dogs that bite people and all of these things should not be because mankind should be there to bring order to bring structure to creation and to lift up the cares and needs of creation to God, but we don't do any of these things. We don't know God's word. We wouldn't know God's word even if we wanted to. So we need God to step back into our life to show us what we were supposed to be, what we were supposed to do. This is what kind of ultimately constitutes the image of God. We're the ones who do all of the things God does. We reflect them back to him. God is the ultimate speaker of his word. He is the ultimate mediator. He is the ultimate one to care for creation. We're to do all of these things kind of under him. And with sin, we've lost the ability and the desire to do any of these things. So as Jesus is anointed and and formally taking all of these roles onto himself, he's showing us what it means to be 
the perfect human. It's not just that we're saved. It's not just that God forgives us and then kind of sends us off to do whatever it is we want to do. We are saved. We're forgiven. We're recreated to do the jobs we were originally given to do. And so when we are baptized into Christ's life, we're being baptized back into what it means to be human, what it means to be in the image of God. So baptism is is a very active event in our life. Our baptism is constantly calling us to live out the vocations that God has given to his creatures. What's the connection between circumcision and baptism? So circumcision is a interesting story. I mean, we we have the brief story where where God gives this covenant to Abraham and says, you know, through your lineage the the savior will come, and that's a standing promise. Abraham doesn't have to do anything to make that happen. God just declares this is how it's going to be. And yet at the same time, God declares to Abraham that all of the male children descended from him are supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, when we look at it just from the Old Testament perspective, there's the identity that comes from having this. I mean, if I'm a circumcised child of Abraham, then I know that it could be one of my children that's going to be the Savior. I mean, that that promise still stands until the very day that it's fulfilled. And so you're always looking forward to this. But it's that ultimately that promise that makes it all go, which is why when St. Paul is talking later in, in Romans about the, the distinction between modern day Jews and Gentiles and what is it, you know, what does it mean to be a Jew and what does it mean to be one of God's people? Well, your descendants from Abraham didn't really get you anything. That wasn't the point. The point was always Christ. It was always that promise. And so circumcision isn't so much about being a descendant of Abraham as being a child of the promise that God was giving to the world, that the Savior would come, and the Savior would come from one of these people. Well, when again, when we look at baptism, St. Paul makes some other statements about how we as Christians We don't start out being God's people. None of us are born into the family of God from the moment we come out of our mother's womb. We have to be adopted. We're brought in because God chooses us. God claims us. God makes us his own. So it's that same promise that stands behind both of these events. God's action, God's saving action that identifies us as one of his people. And just as the Old Testament folks were to look to that promise, and that was what was meant to define them as who they are, we still are defined by that promise. And 
the only difference is we're not looking forward to the birth of Christ. We already know that Christ has come and that he's died and risen again, but the promise that death and resurrection are for us and that salvation is for us through Christ Jesus, the promise is still what makes that claim significant. We are still children of the promise of the Savior. And so baptism is doing the same kinds of things that circumcision does. It is an identifier. It is a God signing on the dotted line that he is legally your father and you are legally his child. And from this day forward, he will treat you as his child. And even if you have a, a crisis of faith, if you leave the church behind, but 20 years later, you have a change of heart and you realize, no, the wide world is a scary place and it's not where I belong. I need to come home. Well, this is your house. You're always welcome back here because you're part of the family. You were baptized. And so God is not just delighted to have you home. He's obligated to receive you back and to forgive you because that's what he promised to do. And so circumcision tells us quite a lot about how God treats us because of our baptism. We will talk about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and how it relates to baptism with Dr. Richard Davenport in part one of our series on Christian baptism next. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Casting Christ's Net on the Internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. It's commonly said that heresies are 90% truth and only 10% wrong, but it's the 10% that subverts all of Christian doctrine and all of Christian teaching by the essential errors that they promote. 
Well, if you're wondering about heresies both ancient and modern, you should pick up a copy of the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, where we talk about these heresies, their ancient roots, and how to mark and avoid them. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or learn more at our website witness.lsms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about Christian baptism. Dr. Richard Davenport is our guest. Ad Crucem offers beautiful Christ-centered baptismal certificates, plaques, church banners, greeting cards, jewelry, and more. You'll find these items at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Dr. Davenport, what about the narratives of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? How were they fulfilled in baptism? So this is a, another one where Luther points out in his flood prayer that the Israelites are crossing the Red Sea. And you think, well, again, from the sounds of it, there's not a whole lot in this crossing of the Red Sea that sounds like it would be baptism. But when you start thinking through the events again, well, why are they crossing the Red Sea? Well, Pharaoh and his armies are chasing them. Well, what are Pharaoh and his armies going to do? Well, enslave them, most certainly, kill them, most likely, bring them back into a world of idolatry and evil, yes, most certainly. And so the crossing of the Red Sea is God saving them from this death that would await them back on the shores of Egypt, this life of slavery, this falling under the powers of idolatry and you know Satan that's standing behind that. And so when Luther is talking about baptism and saying that the benefits of baptism are forgiveness, life, and salvation, we see that being played out as the Israelites are escorted across on dry land and God throws the Egyptian armies into disarray and drowns them. I mean, that's quite literally what they're being saved from is the powers of death and Satan. But then what? I mean, they get to the other side and they wander for a little bit, but it doesn't take them long before they're grumbling already against God and against Moses. And Moses is tearing his hair out, trying to figure out what to do with these people. But they start to kind of learn a little bit about what it means to be under God's care. They make it to Sinai, they receive the law, and then they're off and running again. But we run into some more uh, more trouble. They refuse to cross the Jordan, and so God declares that they're going to wander for another generation, and that it's going to be a while before they finally make it over to the promised land. But he doesn't abandon them. They're still his people. He has claimed them. He has made that promise. And Moses has to remind God on occasion that this is what he said. And so, yep, God made that promise. And so God has to stand by his promise. And so for 40 years, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And well, what are they doing? Well, they're quite literally following where God leads. 
God leads them in the pillar of cloud and fire. The cloud of God's glory settles on the tabernacle after it's built, and they know that when the, the cloud is there on the tabernacle, it's time to pitch camp. And when the cloud picks up, it's time to break camp. God's going to lead us somewhere else. And so for 40 years, this is kind of their life. They're following God and they're, they're learning what it means to be his people. God provides for them their daily food and such every single day for these 40 years. And finally, finally, After those 40 years, it's time to move on. It's time to enter the promised land. And so they get to the the shores of the Jordan. And this time they're not being chased by Pharaoh or any of the Egyptian armies. But yet we see the very same kinds of things going on because God declares that the ark held by the priests is to march into the Jordan. And when it does, the waters are going to stop so that all the people can cross on dry land. And so this parallel between the Red Sea and the Jordan there at the end tells us that this whole time that the Israelites are spending there in the Sinai Peninsula is really kind of one big event. They're not really meant to be taken as the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan and all this stuff in between. It's all one big thing. And what are the the Israelites doing? Well, they're learning to be disciples. They're learning what it means to follow God, to learn from him. They're receiving the law and all of the kinds of things that Jesus later declares are part of the life of a disciple. What do you do when you're a disciple? How do you become a disciple? Well, teaching and baptizing. And so that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They're being baptized, quote unquote, as even Luther would say. That's kind of what the Israelites were receiving in the Red Sea. And that whole time they're in the wilderness, they're receiving the law. They're learning what it means to live out that law and Finally, that time comes to a close when they set foot on the other side of the Jordan and that baptismal period ends and they move on to something bigger and better. They move on to the fulfillment of what God promised before they ever left Egypt, the promised land. They knew that was the goal and baptism is what ultimately brought them there. What role does the baptism of Jesus itself play in Scripture's teaching on baptism? Well, the baptism of Jesus tells us that not just this event, but this person is the focal point. Jesus is bringing all of that Old Testament theology, all of the prophecies, all of that stuff that we've been given throughout all of those books, and he's saying all of this applies to me. And so to be a part of all of those prophecies, all of those promises. You have to find it in this one person. You can't go getting all of those blessings, all of those fulfillments of promises anywhere else because God is bundling them all up together in the person of Christ. So being a part of God's 
creative or recreative work. Well, there's only one place you're going to find that. There's only one place you're going to find what it means to be free of sin as the flood kind of shows us what is God's goal and purpose. And that only happens in the person of Christ. There's only one place where we learn what it means to be a disciple, and that's following Christ and learning from him, walking behind him. So all of the baptismal themes all find their fulfillment in the person of Christ. And so he's the one we look to, to see what does this mean? What do I receive when I come to the waters and am baptized? It's a Trinitarian baptism for a reason. So the work that goes on at creation as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are gathered there together is found there again at the Jordan as Christ enters the water and then is found again when I come to the font and the pastor pours the water over my head and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God is recreating me resetting me and making me like Christ. He is restoring the image of God that I had lost. He is restoring me to what it means to be human. He is recreating me, resetting me to a time where sin for me is no longer a worry. And so Christ is the one who ultimately connects those dots. He brings the modern day and the beginnings of history together in one place and in one time. Dr. Richard Davenport is pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and ask for The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We'll conclude our series on Christian baptism tomorrow, talking with Dr. Davenport about what the baptized life looks like and why holiness is a major feature of baptism. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.